Well, I want to take today to sort of um, set us up for where we're going to go beginning probably next week, I think. Um, we're, we're turning the corner, obviously, into Genesis chapter 9. And um, I just started looking back through the last number of weeks that we've been together, uh, really digging into the flood narrative. And, and we've really taken a few different approaches or a few different views of this narrative. Um, you may recall that the last few weeks, we sort of took this view of the flood narrative from the perspective of how it collides directly with the sentiments of modern culture and modern thinking. Um, it really reveals to us um, God and his purposes in both judgment and salvation in ways that really clash with modern sensibilities. Um, so we kind of took an approach to look at that. Last week we focused quite a bit on um, the salvation elements of the flood narrative and, and really the amazing sort of vivid and stark um, nature of that, that imagery and how it also compares beautifully with uh, the actual cross. When you look at the ark and how it was this big public spectacle, um, it, w- it had a level of sort of scorn and, and really absurdity from the secular mindset to it. This, the ark was the same way. and um, So just the, the, the parallels there to the salvation that we have in Christ and, and really through the sacrifice that was made on the cross on our behalf. So we looked a little bit at that over the last few weeks. And so it kind of dawned on me that we really haven't in a while just sort of taken in the, the actual... Um, elements of the story, um, the content of the narrative, if you will, in a summary kind of fashion so that we can turn the corner and really look at um, this real introduction to the new world, if you will, to this new environment and this sort of replenishing the earth, if you will, and repopulating the earth and and what takes place uh, after the flood as Noah and his family emerge from the ark and really that covenant uh, that's ratified there and in uh, Genesis chapter 9, and looking at God's introduction of that covenant. And I really think I want to spend a little bit of time talking about um, the, the covenants of God uh, as they're revealed in Scripture. I'm not going to do a, an extensive study on that, but just since it's introduced, since the term is introduced to us uh, in the context of our study here, I want to spend a little bit of time on looking at sort of the, the basic elements of, of the covenants um, that we see in, in Scripture, the Old Testament covenants in particular. But I uh, don't think I'll spend a lot of time there, but just in a survey fashion. So we need to kind of get the flood narrative sort of wrapped up in our minds just from this, this perspective of the content of the story, the content of, of what happened uh, in this account. And so I do want to just do a, a bit of a survey, a quick survey. And I may throw out some questions uh, for you to, to sort of consider to kind of probe your thinking again on maybe some of the things that that uh, we've talked about um, in past weeks. You may not have been here for you know, every single time, but uh, if it's some new observation that you, you make from what we're talking about today, or if it's something that you recall um, that prompted your thinking from a prior time that we've been together as we kind of sweep through the narrative, then, then that would be great to hear your, your feedback and your comments on that. So, but as we look at um, the flood narrative and sort of the broad sweep of the whole story to move ourselves into... Uh, Genesis chapter 9, um, we, we've talked about in Genesis chapter 6 how the, 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 the story begins with this backstory in the first eight verses. You see sort of the backstory of the flood and what's about to unfold. 
And then also uh, in Genesis chapter 6, you see what I've termed the blueprint of judgment and salvation. Um, And of course, the backstory, what we see in the first five verses is you see this multiplication of man on the earth, this indication of man filling the earth and multiplying, fulfilling that that, uh, mandate to uh, multiply and fill the earth, but it's coupled with the multiplication of corruption and sin and wickedness. That's sort of the equation, if you will, that gets laid out for us there in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6. Man's comprehensive corruption and wickedness is multiplied or compounded or whatever other mathematical term you want to use. It grows exponentially. I mean, pick your mathematical concept. But what you see there is man multiplying in terms of population and corresponding to that multiplication in population is the preponderance and multiplication and exacerbation of sin and wickedness to a, an extensive degree. So much so that you see in the next few verses, in verses 6 and 7 of Genesis chapter 6, you see God's comprehensive grief expressed as a result of this. So you see man's comprehensive wickedness. Every thought and intention of his heart is only evil continually. Um, and then you see man, you see God's comprehensive grief being um, uh, articulated there in the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6. Particularly in verses 6 and 7, you see God's comprehensive grief and then his promise of comprehensive judgment. So it's almost like you see these, I mean, what came to my mind, I guess, was somewhat of a mathematical equation or this equals this kind of thing where You see man multiplying on the earth, sin multiplying on the earth. You see that corresponding to, I don't want to use this term um, erroneously, that God's grief was multiplied, but you definitely see him expressing his grief being exacerbated extensively as a result of this, corresponding to the increase in wickedness and corruption. And then you see the commitment on the part of God to judge Uh, this wickedness in a comprehensive way. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And then in verse 8, though, we're not left there. Again, we're in this backstory section. In verse 8, we have that wonderful wonderful statement about Noah, this man who will be the central character in this narrative, where God's promise of comprehensive judgment, it, it, it magnifies his comprehensive grace that even in the face of this massive commitment of coming judgment, you see that Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, that Noah found favor with God. And you see this element of promise of grace, this promise of rescue, this promise of deliverance kind of being hinted at here as the story begins to unfold. And then you get to Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 to 22, and you move from this backstory of the flood and this blueprint of judgment and salvation, of course, um, you see the blueprint of judgment and salvation more specifically in verses 9 to 22. You've got the backstory in 1 to 8, and then you've got the blueprint of judgment and salvation in verses 9 to 22 of Genesis chapter 6. And again, if you think in terms of a blueprint, including specifications for construction, um, that's what you kind of see in the narrative there. Um, But the first thing you see in verse 9 is you see Noah's faithfulness is specified. So you make that transition from verse 8 where Noah has found favor with God. And then you get to verse 9 
And the, the elements of Noah's faithfulness are specified in more detail. He was a righteous man. He was faithful. He was obedient. So um, that's, that's Noah's faithfulness being specified. But then you see how you have sort of a, a greater specification of the earth's corruption that comes next. So you go from a general statement about man's corruption and wickedness in the backstory section and then you get into this section where you're starting to see more specificity being outlined, a blueprint, if you will, being outlined where the earth's corruption is specified. You have this indication, for example, verses 11 to 12, how it was a world of violence, that, that man's wickedness has, had multiplied and, and it was a world that was filled with violence as a, as a more specific description. Um, then you get to verses 13 to 21, and you begin to see God's plan of judgment and salvation specified. For example, he says, I'm going to make an end of all flesh. So you have a general statement up in the backstory section of this coming judgment. Now he's going to make it more specific. In verses 13 and then also in verse 17, I'm just kind of skipping through some of the terminology here. He says, I'm going to make an end of all flesh. I'm going to destroy the earth. I will bring a flood of waters to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So you have quite a bit of specificity being articulated here in this blueprint of judgment. Um, There in verses 13 and then also in verse 17. But you also have the specifications of salvation, really, um, to kind of use that terminology. Verses 14 to 16 and then also verses 18 to 21 where you start seeing God giving Noah the plans for the ark. This is going to be the means of God's salvation through this flood. And it's, it's a very specific plan. Make for yourself an ark. And then he gives them all the specifications of its measurements. How long, how deep, how high, how many decks. Um, all, the, all the specificity there of this blueprint. And then he says, I will establish my covenant with you. And then he tells them to bring two of every sort into the ark, and take with you every sort of food. So you have all this specification going on about how this salvation is going to be executed. There's going to be a vessel that will be a vessel of deliverance, but there needs to be a plan for the new earth and populating the new earth with with animals, and so he gives specificity around that. He again sort of reaffirms in even more specific way a promise of covenant with Noah in the middle of that that section where he says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. So you see this specification language being articulated in verses 9 to 22 of Genesis chapter 6, both of the judgment and of the salvation that will come. And then again in verse 22, and you see this repeating on, in, in, in numerous times throughout this narrative. Verse 22, you see Noah's faithfulness demonstrated. It says that basically all these things that God laid out for him, all these things that God commanded for him, it just says that Noah did it. And he did all that the Lord commanded him. There in verse 22. I started thinking about the flow of this narrative. You know, you have this backstory, and then you have this sort of this blueprint, this specification. And of course, I'm trying to come up with rhetorical devices that will help me communicate this in, in hopefully an interesting kind of way. So, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, 
We've got sort of a little bit of a backstory or a preamble to the story, if you want to call it that. But then you have this blueprint kind of terminology being laid out, specifications for the ark and how this, you know, what he needs to do with the animals and sort of an indication of this coming covenant, the promise uh, that he's making there. Um, you have all the specification. You have this blueprint. And I'm thinking, so I need the next thing to be the sort of the building process. There is no building process. All you have is verse 22. Noah did it. Isn't that interesting? I thought that was an interesting um, note in the text. There's nothing there that talks about how he did it, how long it took, what it looked like. We just say that it just says he did it, which obviously is all we needed to know. Simple, basic, yet comprehensive faithfulness. And it's highlighted there at the end of this in verse 22. And then you turn to Genesis chapter 7, and you see what I'm calling the bracing for judgment. You see the the perpetual belief in salvation. And then you see this bearing up under the judgment as it's unfolding, as as the deluge is happening. So you see bracing for judgment, belief in salvation, and the bearing up under judgment. The first four verses of Genesis chapter 7, you see an indication of this bracing for judgment. You almost see this countdown clock that starts seven days. Verses 1 to 4, seven days of final preparation and massive migration onto the ark is, going to, is commanded there. So it says that God says, go into the ark. And he says, in seven days I will send rain on the earth. Every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. So it's like, okay, it's time. It's here, seven days. Better load it up. So there's a bracing for judgment that's kind of underway here. But you also see unfolding here as you continue on in the narrative, this indication of of just faithful belief in God's salvation here. And it's really difficult for us to imagine, uh, or maybe it's not difficult for us to imagine, we just don't have a lot of um, textual content to to confirm what we might imagine. But you have to know, and we've talked about this before, that you're in an environment that is characterized by comprehensive wickedness and violence and anything but a calling on the name of the Lord that you saw happening in prior chapters of Genesis where you have the line of Seth and Enosh who then people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. That's not the the culture, that's not the environment that this is taking place in. So you have to know that There was ample opportunity and ample temptation on the part of Noah and his family to say, enough already. And if you recall, this was a long, drawn-out period of time that this was taking place. This construction project uh, was a long, long, long protracted period of time. And so in the face of all of this, you get down to this bracing up for judgment. It's the time has come, and God marks a seven-day clock, if you will. And he gives instructions. Here's what you must do now. Here's what you must accomplish. And you see, again, this belief in salvation. Noah's belief is affirmed. Again, verse 5, same kind of commentary on, on Noah. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. So he's maintaining faithfulness to this plan, this, this coming judgment and the means of salvation that he will be a recipient of, um, a beneficiary of, and he just does all that the Lord commanded him to do. 
as this bracing up of judgment and this continued belief in salvation is taking place. So Noah's belief is affirmed there in verse 5, and then his belief is demonstrated for us. Like it's put on vivid display in verses 6 to 16. It says, They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh. In verse 15 and 16, it's sort of the summary of, of that section. Verse 15 and 16, They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So you have this, this time period this countdown clock where it's time to load up and there's just a a faithful obedience where this belief in God that he is going to do this thing and this is going to be the means by which he brings your deliverance, this massive undertaking, I mean, just this, this massive migration of animals and beasts onto this massive, hopefully floating box, and there's just a faithfulness to do that. So that belief and that faith and that, that trust in God and His promise of judgment and His promise of deliverance is demonstrated. And again, it's, it's difficult for us to imagine this because you know, our lives do not span over hundreds of years. So there's this, there's this um, more, more brief view of time and history for us. But we also... I don't think any of us can really imagine this kind of undertaking in that kind of environment and culture with the limitations that they had. I mean, we're not talking about a a high-tech culture. You know, we're not talking about, you know, you had big earth movers and things to build something like that. I mean, just just the, 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 the massive scale and... And, and continued reaffirmation of your trust in this God who's commanding you to do these things had to be just incredible. And yet there Noah is leading his family to do all these things with judgment looming now. So they get on the ark, all the animals get on the ark, and the Lord shut him in. And then you have... Uh, the last part of Genesis chapter 7, you have the bearing up under judgment. Of course, this is when the flood comes. In verses 17 to 24, it says, The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out. From the earth, only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. We just can't imagine, we just can't imagine what it was like to bear up under that massive scale of utter and complete judgment and destruction. And of course, I've mentioned this several times, and you know, we can look at YouTube videos of massive calamities involving huge volumes of water, and we just can't even get 
a really good comparative picture in our minds of, of what this was what this was like. But there nonetheless is a bearing up under this judgment and certainly under the care and provision and and who knows how many different ways supernatural care and provision of God in the midst of all this. But this language of judgment is pervasive. It's it's unapologetic. It's violent, actually. Um, and it's certainly comprehensive in nature. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. So Noah and his family had to bear up under this on the ark. And again, imagine life on the ark. Imagine the environment on the ark. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I used to have trouble just dealing with changing my own kids' diapers because of the odor sometimes. Imagine, imagine the ark, life on the ark, and bearing up under that travail. So again, you can think about what's going on outside, and you can think about what's going on inside, and there was a level of endurance and sustained perseverance through this long, drawn-out um, judgment process that was certainly in play. And of course, certainly with the provision of the Lord in ways that we don't see necessarily revealed in the text, but have to kind of imagine was in place there as well, sustaining them and protecting them and, and uh, encouraging them along the way. And then you get to chapter 8, and really what you start to see here is, is what I call the beginning of a new world and the beginning of a new covenant. And again, very hard for us to imagine um, what this might have been like. We talked about this um, at some point a week or two ago and how there's this mindset that we have of, of leaving the ark that is sort of like, oh, there's the rainbow. And, you know, sort of just almost like it's, you know, you, you, you get off the plane in some tropical island for a one-week vacation and the breeze whisks through your hair and you just smell the sea and you just, oh, it's just so refreshing. But this was... This was nothing like that. It couldn't have been anything like that. I mean, there was, there was destruction and death and just, you know, everywhere, I'm sure. Um, again, we don't have a lot of detail about what, what they saw after the fact. We can just infer it by the nature of what took place while they were on the ark and just think about what happens when water in massive volume washes over anything, Right? But you have this extensive description, obviously, of, of the, the, the amount, if you will, the volume of death and destruction that took place, and it's comprehensive. And they get off, um, they, 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 well, actually, you start in verse uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 8, where you start to see the waters begin to abate, and you see solid ground emerging um, there in the first five verses. And obviously the ark settles on a mountain, Mount Ararat. And then there's this period of time that still has to pass before they can get off the ark. This long period of time where the waters are abating. And of course, we, I read to you from one possible scenario of, of a, a catastrophic plate tectonic model of what might have possibly been happening geologically, but um, in terms of 
continental shift and and uh, the water sinking down to the depths of the ocean as the as the the depths deepen and um, just who knows exactly what happened we weren't there but but some models have been created to to sort of indicate what could have possibly happened uh, geologically. But nevertheless, it was a new world. It was a new place. It was a different place. And I say new, I don't mean like new in the sense of, of wow, we're going to get a new car. It was just new in the sense that it was vastly different, vastly changed. But it's also the beginning of a new covenant. You have the waters abating. You have solid ground emerging. You have this building of hope. When you see the description there in verses 6 through 13, uh, where you have this process of a raven going out and then a dove going out and coming back and sort of this, this hopeful process for when, when will this, this judgment be fully abated and when will this, this building hope be fully sort of consummated in us being able to leave this ark. And then ultimately, there is this confirmation of deliverance when God says it's time to get off. The water, the waters had abated. There was dry ground. In verses 14 to 19, you see there where God tells them it's time to get off the ark, and they get off the ark. And there's also this new mandate that's commissioned. Let's look at this real quick. you have semblances of the mandate from the creation account here in Genesis chapter 8. In verse 15, it says, Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So there's this multiplication mandate, again, if you will, that's stated here. And, of course, it gets restated more explicitly in chapter 9, and we'll look at that. But, again, another massive undertaking. Isn't it easy to kind of just pass over this and go, so they just got off the ark? But (laughs) who knows what that was like, right? Who knows how significant a task that was? Yeah, I mean, just, just, it's hard to imagine. It really is very hard to imagine uh, you know what what it must have been like, um, and I don't. You know, I, of course, I don't know how. I don't know how much the, the spirit of God was sort of superintending the. Um, this is not the right term, but the the temperament of the animals after being cooped up all that time. But <laughs> I can only imagine there was a little bit of uh, eagerness to get off that boat. Um, so anyway, just this, this sense of not, not peaceful exiting this cruise ship onto a shore excursion, you know, where you're going to go tour some ruins on an island. Oh, it just, it's just, it's hard to imagine. Again, it's, it's, it's interesting to kind of think about it. Um, uh, it'd be nice if we had a lot more detail and description. That'd be really interesting to kind of get some specifics of like, you know, what, what were the lions doing? You know, or something like that. Yeah, just um, yeah. So, uh, but um, but we have to you know kind of infer from just what we know of of the behavior of animals in general. 
And again, you can't, you can't take away um, God's superintending work over all this. Of course, none of this, we could even remotely envision it being possible without God's supernatural superintending work over this entire enterprise. But what we know is that God does not hold back in describing the violent, comprehensive, devastating nature of the judgment. So in other words, what we see in the narrative as it un- unfolds for us is, is sort of gritty reality. So I think it's safe to say that, that that was the case when they left the ark. It was a gritty reality, probably even somewhat of a, a grim reality as they stepped off the ark. I mean, just imagine if, um, if, you, if you've ever... Obviously, see, maybe, maybe you've experienced this uh, personally, either yourselves or maybe you have close family members that have experienced this, but certainly I'm sure you've seen this on uh, newscasts and whatnot, where after some type of major natural disaster, maybe a tornado sweeps through the Midwest and it's just, I mean, it just wipes out a whole town kind of thing. And you see sort of, you know, the graciousness of newscasts that get the video going right right after they kind of step out and see their house, you know, laid, <laughs> laid to the ground. But there is oftentimes sort of a dazed and confused, sort of like despairing, like what do we do now kind of thing that you oftentimes see. Because everything that was like stable and that you kind of walked in for shelter against the elements and, you know, everything that was sort of normal and natural Maybe you go to work and then you come home and you come to this place. It's all like gone. Everything is just gone. So put that on a very small scale of a localized natural disaster like a tornado taking out some houses and then just multiply it by I don't know how much. And there's no one in his family walking out of this ark. And everything that was somewhat normal and comforting and and all that was just gone. So you, you sort of get that, that sense of perspective, which kind of guides us into the next part here. And that's the beginning of this new covenant in verses 20 to 22 of chapter 8. And what does it begin with? What does verse 20 begin with? An altar. An altar of worship. An altar of sacrifice. And I mentioned this, uh, I don't know if it was last week or in a prior week to that. Um, I, I read this somewhere. I have to give credit to someone else. I didn't think of this myself. It wasn't my own insight. But I, I remember reading um, that the nature of this sacrifice was sort of like an atonement sacrifice as well as a Thanksgiving kind of act of worship. And it, it never occurred to me until I read this that is it not quite possible, maybe even probable, especially when you think about everything we have in the narrative describing Noah and the kind of man that he was, that he steps off the ark, and it's not just an act of worship thanking God for getting him through this bad situation, but it's possibly a a sense of laid bare recognition of his own frailty and weakness and sinfulness and need of God's salvation in light of seeing the evidence of his massive judgment against the wickedness of man. Like the overwhelming sense of there but for the grace of God go I kind of thing. 
So there's an atonement element uh, to this act of worship as he builds this altar and, and makes these sacrifices. And of course, it is a pleasing act of worship to the Lord. We see how God responds to that. It says that Noah built an altar to the Lord in verse 20. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said it in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination... That's not... That's an NIV translation. Just picked up on that really quick. I'd rather have the ESV. It says, and when, Noah, and, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. While the earth remains. So you have God's sort of initiating the beginning of this covenant that he will ultimately execute and ratify in the next chapter. It says he said in his heart. So this is not God ratifying the covenant with Noah at this moment, but it's certainly indicating uh, the intent of that covenant that he will certainly ratify publicly and explicitly in chapter 9. But it is a promise to not destroy the earth, even in spite of man's wickedness. So what we know, obviously we know from experience, we know from the, the unfolding of the rest of redemptive history that we have in Scripture, we know by virtue of our own sin and our own need of a Savior, we, we know this because we know of what Christ came and did and suffered on our behalf and took on our sin and became a substitution for our sin and sacrifice on the cross. We, we know this personally, but we certainly also can see this in the text that, that this judgment and this eradication of wicked, the wicked men that were on the planet that, that did not eliminate wickedness. Didn't eliminate it. So that, again, is another indication of the grace of God in that He redeems sinners in that while they are yet sinners, He saves them but he doesn't eliminate sin altogether from the planet in this regard. If that were the case, then we wouldn't be here needing a Savior. You wouldn't have had the rest of redemptive history. But you have explicitly God saying that, that the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. And of course, we're going to see that in Noah and his sons. That's going to play out again in, in, the, in the narrative as we, as we go forward. But he says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And this really is an indication of um, a return to some semblance of normalcy. You have, you have massive, sovereign, supernaturally initiated and executed, cataclysmic, earth reshaping, population consuming judgment that just completely changes the face of the planet and of the population and of the, the renewal of that 
um, creation mandate with Noah and his family. This is, this is an indication of a return to some, some elements of normalcy, some elements of predictability in man's experience, both of his environment and the, the elements, the, the climate. It will go on as it is from this day forward until there's another judgment event that we know is promised in the New Testament. So, when you turn the corner here and get into chapter 9, you begin to see this this, um, more specific step into this new world where God begins to bless Noah and his sons and he begins to give them sort of almost a brand new creation mandate, if you will, that's very similar to what we uh, saw in Genesis chapter 1. And we see this uh, ratification of the covenant, the sign of the covenant, and it introduces to us for the first time this formalization of covenant in the text of Scripture. And we'll talk about that. I've been doing quite a bit of reading just about covenants and about different views on the covenants and, uh, and all that. We'll kind of uh, elucidate some of that as we go forward. But nevertheless, this is the first place in Scripture where you have an explicit um, ceremonial ratification of covenant um, with that term being used, if you will. Of course, it's promised previously to Noah. It's promised again, and then it's ratified here. So this is, there's something unique about this particular, um, this particular covenant. Of course, covenant in general is a binding promise between two parties. So you can broaden that to say, well, what about the, the covenant of works and the covenant of, you know, the covenant of grace? There's different ideas about how to interpret uh, the flow of redemptive history in light of covenants. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. I just want to kind of touch on that as it's introduced here without going into too much depth as we go forward. Um, but nevertheless, we'll see more explicitly the elements of the covenant that God establishes with Noah and ultimately uh, with Noah and his offspring us included, uh, going forward. Any comments or questions or thoughts before we close our time and get ready next week to head into chapter 9? Bob made an interesting observation to me just before class. It's interesting that the scripture says nothing about the spiritual walk of, of the rest of Noah's family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did they just kind of get a pass or what? We don't so, no, do we? we? We don't. I mean, I... I, I um, I really don't know how to speak to that other than they were they were at least chosen as uh, Noah's sons to be beneficiaries of the salvation that was wrought. And their wives. And their wives, that's right. Um, they were a necessary evil, if nothing else. How else could we have any offspring without them? Yeah, I mean, so I, 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 I but it's hard to, it's hard to, to say. Um, Right. You realize you've got a problem. There's some indication there that, that after the flood, you know, problems emerge for sure. So, yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to speak to that. Um, but they certainly, they certainly, if nothing else, were the beneficiaries under the umbrella of Noah's faithfulness and 
I'm sure they had some level of appreciation for that for a period of time. <laughs> it might not have been a sustaining appreciation, but it certainly was. And that's, a, that's an interesting thing to think about, how, um, how easy it is for people, us included, to forget the goodness and grace of God and to think of your own sort of spiritual journey and your own sort of spiritual maturity and how you've gone through various seasons where you've had a, a palpable sense of God's, a, a palpable sense of the need for God's grace and presence and forgiveness in your life. And God meets you in a meaningful way, either through the ministry of his word, through the, the comfort of his spirit, through the, the help and support of godly friends and family, whatever it might be, but it, it, it has a level of impact on you and, and it moves you spiritually and it, and it enlarges your, your worship and your gratitude to God for his goodness for meeting this need. And then if you just look back, I'm sure you're like me and you look back and you go, and, and, then, I, and then I forgot. And, and then my, my, my gratitude and my appreciation and my thankfulness waned. And that's what happens. That's what redemptive history looks like uh, even beyond Noah. We thank you, God, for his sustaining grace that's not dependent upon my ability to keep it going all the time, right? Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed.